microphone now. No, that's a, that is a, a difficult reading, so thank you. Uh, you know, in Leviticus, if you're just joining us, you know, or if you've been on and off kind of with us here for the last year, we've been going through the Pentateuch as a church, which is the story, this overarching story of the first five books of the Bible, which has been this story and this hope and promise of a child who will come and who will undo sin and death, and this call now to the people of God to live with fear and awe, to live this like wholehearted life before the Lord, trusting in him that he is leading them and providing for them, that he's bringing them to this land, that he's providing for them this, his Savior, all of these things, and they're to look and they're to wait. And all of that makes sense, but then you get to Leviticus, right? And everyone starts to, like, what's the deal with this book of the Bible? Why, why is it here? Why do we have it in the middle of the Pentateuch? Um, right? This is kind of where read through the Bible plans, go to die, or everyone's kind of done when they get to Leviticus or disparage Leviticus. So in a lot of ways, I feel like my summer here is spent as an apologist for the book of Leviticus. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's the most quoted book of Jesus in the New Testament, uh, and it really is about this, this overarching idea or message, right, of calling God's people to be unlike every other people. That's, that's this overarching message. He has drawn them out of Egypt. He's brought them to Sinai. And he is telling them, right, you will be a people unlike any other people. Because you have a God unlike any other God. And so thus far in Leviticus, we've answered that kind of question. Again, more from an apologetic standpoint, really, like, what's the deal here? You know, why, why all the priests? Why priesthood? How did they come, become? They were supposed to be a nation of priests, but instead they become a nation with priests. And so God uses this priesthood as a reminder and a pointer to them, ultimately, of their true need of mediation and atonement and that will eventually come. But this like, real reminder in their midst of a holy and set-apart people who will mediate for them. Last week we talked about sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, the shedding of blood. Why all of these sacrifices? Why all this animal blood sh- shedding? Right, and it's, you really have, again, a daily experience of God's redemptive work in their lives. As a people and as a nation, they will daily and yearly at these festivals experience the atonement, experience who God is and what he has called them to do. And now we really have to wrestle with a lot of these questions of why laws and why so many laws here in Leviticus. And George and Deirdre both have preached on this when we were in Exodus, because if you, if you follow that trajectory of the, of the Exodus, right, it, it follows a pattern. The people grumble and complain and sin against God, and then laws come, right? It started out very, very simple. First law, only law was once a year, celebrate the Passover. That's it. Just remember that I am your God. I'm the one who brought you out of captivity once a year. Remember this Passover. They go through the Exodus. They grumble, and they complain 10 times. They get 10 laws at Sinai. You know, they, the golden calf incident happens. Moses breaks the tablets, goes back up. He gets more laws. He te- comes back with more laws to the people. And even in Leviticus, in the last chapter in 17, before we got to Leviticus 18, the, narrator, or the, the author here gives a point that they were worshiping goat demons. It's just this little throw-in verse of like, and the people had been worshiping goat demons. And then 18, boom, okay, here's all these laws. Like, the people have a problem 
right, with worshiping of the Lord. And so the laws keep being given to God's people, not as a means of salvation. That's what we were talking about last week. But rather, and this is how the New Testament views the laws as well, as, but as guardians, as guides, as kind of rails to try to direct and redirect and keep the people on track as they are a wayward, forgetful, idolatrous people who are constantly distrusting the Lord and taking part in all kinds of abominations, which we're, we read here today. And it's like, this is a people who need rules. These are a people who need laws. We are a people who need laws. We are a people who need rules. And so God gives rules and laws to his people really as a way to continue to point them and push them back to him and to this hope that one day all things will be made right. So as we come to Leviticus 18, so that was the text this morning that Deirdre that, that read all 30 verses of. Um, and so again, if you have, you know, feel free to look up Leviticus 18. You know, so we don't have the, the text right in front of you in a handout. But if you want to look through those, this law and just through those, these chapters of Leviticus, right, it really starts to get very, very specific. And we have to, again, take that step back to just kind of remember the whole point of Leviticus is this call of God to his people to be unlike all other people, any other people. And that's how this chapter begins, right? Like, you will not be like the Egyptians where you just left. And you are also not going to be like the Canaanites where you are going in regards to these sexual practices. This is, you will not do these things. They are to be unlike any people, and in particular, in the way that they love each other, love their neighbor, and really are in their forms of justice and in their way that they're going to worship the Lord. They're going to be unlike anyone. This idea that Jesus gives in the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, I mean, it's coming right out of Leviticus. You are to love your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. You are to love the land that you are going into. You will be a blessing to this place. You are going to bless the nations as a people. You will be unlike any other people. Right? I am forming you into a people who will love unlike anyone. Right? And that goes back to those ideas of the redemption and atonement and purification. Right? And it's, we love, Israel is to love like no one else has loved before. They are to be holy like no other nation is holy because their God is holy. And that repeated phrase throughout Leviticus and particularly here in Leviticus 18, be holy because I am holy. Right? Like they have a God, we have a God who is unlike any other God, which gives them now this new purpose. And so as we get into these laws, and we get into the sexual laws in particular, next week, Jiri's going to look at other laws when it comes to business and money. We're going to look at some other laws when it comes to society and community life. I mean, there's a lot of laws here in Leviticus, but why then give these laws? And in Leviticus 18, it tells you, right, that the laws are given not so that they will be God's people, right? This isn't follow these sexual laws and then you will be my people. Then I will hold, then I will care for you, I'll take care of you, I'll bring you into the land. But rather, these laws are given for how you are going to dwell in this land. You will go into this new land and this is how you are to dwell amongst the people. There's a promising within Leviticus 18 and within all the laws of flourishing, like, if you follow my law, if you follow my commands, if you operate in this way, you will flourish in the land that I'm bringing you to. If you don't, right, the land will vomit you out, right? You will no longer be my people anymore, right? In essence, of like, you will no longer be holy, right? Because you'll be indistinguishable 
from the nations, from the people that you're going into. If you follow my law, there will be flourishing. If you neglect this law, right, if you work against this law, if you violate it and break it, the land will vomit you out just like they have vomited out every other nation. I'm right? saying like all of these nations have operated in this way and all of these nations have been vomited out from the land. And he said, and that's what will happen to you too. It's a very, I mean, evocative language, just vomiting. Really, the, the land is alive and you will leave a terrible taste in the land's mouth to the point where the land will not have you and they will spit you out kind of idea, right? If you don't operate in this way, if you don't follow these laws. So the laws, as we look at them then, I mean, they're incredibly practical in nature. And that really is this overarching idea to all of the laws. And we can get into individual ones, right? I mean, it's a long list. And this isn't the only chapter that has sexual laws as well. There's two other sections it's going to give. It's really a repeating of the same ones. But again, more and more of these sexual laws. They're very, very, very straightforward. And they're very, very practical in nature. I mean, if they are to become a nation, if that's the goal, if they are going to become a nation that's going to bless the world and show the wisdom and love of God, they are going to need to restrain themselves. They, they, just, they are. They're going to need some constraints around sexual appetites and desires, around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. If they're going to be this nation, they're going to need to be constrained. They're going to need to have order when it comes to family, when it comes to having children, when it comes to building, to nation building. It can't just be a free-for-all. If they can't restrain their sexual impulses, right? You have this feeling throughout the text. If they can't pull it together as a people when it comes to sex and marriage and having children, then it's going to have generational and societal effects that are going to be long-lasting as a people and as a society and as a culture. And ultimately, right, and this is, it, they're going to be no different than all the rest of the nations, in particular in how they care for women and children, the vulnerable, those who are the easiest to take advantage of sexually, they will be just like everybody else. So we have to ask the question then, or I think a question that gets asked a lot, especially by those who are skeptics of Christianity, or I think those who are Christians, as you read these texts, you know, why does God care so much about sex? You know, why is this such a big deal? Right, this is a common kind of con objection, this kind of idea of Christians, you know, the God of Christianity just cares so much about sex, but not of everything else. Like, what's the deal? Why, why is that such a centerpiece to all of this um, to all these texts. And actually, if we do look at the Pentateuch through the lens of sex and sexuality, it's incredibly central. Right, right from the very, very beginning, with Adam and Eve and becoming one flesh and being naked and unashamed. I mean, like, whoa, it, there's sex in the garden and it continues through. And you do have these, this picture coming out more and more and more. And even with, uh, with Noah and the uncovering of his nakedness, right after the flood you're going whoa what's going on and you more and more and more abraham and his sexual issues with his own wife and his servants and what where is this all going you know that there's this ideas of from the very beginning god's intention was to use a man and a woman to bring forth a child 
and that child one day will save humanity. And you see through the Pentateuch that get distorted more and more and more and more and more to the place where polygamy is just common, to the place where you really have the misuse and abuse of sexuality away from its intended function and purpose and really get misused and construed, especially in worship ways that you find within Egypt and the Canaanites. And also, we, we have to keep in mind what has just happened with those people, like Deirdre preached on with the, the golden calf incident. It wasn't just worshiping a calf. It was an orgy. There was all kinds of sexual sin that took place at the foot of Sinai, which was common, normal within the ancient world. Within the ancient world, that, that was the cultic prostitution, temple, all those things went hand in hand. When you went to worship foreign gods, sex was a major component of it. This, they are to be different, but this is a people, and we've seen through the Pentateuch, right, this, they, who continually don't look any different than the rest of the nations around them. There's a centrality in Scripture that's given, and just to hear it in the Pentateuch, and it'll get developed throughout Scripture, but there's a centrality and importance given to men and to women equally as the image of God. There's a centrality and importance given to marriage. There's a centrality and importance given to having children. Like These things matter. These things are important. And these things need to be cared for. That in the physical union of a man and a woman, there's something incredibly powerful, even spiritual. There's a, there's a great book I was just reading this last week by Deborah Hirsch um, uh, called Redeeming Sex which is really, she recounts her own stories of coming to Christ, but just really looks at, again, from the, if you just look at sexuality and sex, I mean, is there anything, right, in this world that comes as close that for this experience of ecstasy, of joy, of deep longing and satisfaction, of being loved and loving somebody else in a very intimate way and manner, right? I mean, our culture, our world is obsessed with sex, right? And we know this, but we, we, try to pretend like it's not. Anyway, she just recounts her story of coming within to the church then and being like, nobody talks about sex. Nobody, we act like sex is a, a terrible thing. What's going on? Why is this so taboo to, to talk about sex? The world, the culture has an obsession with it, and Christians seem to have a very odd relationship when it comes to, comes to sex. But it seems scripturally, and we see here in Leviticus, that God has an intention for it. That it's something important and that it needs to be guarded. Which our culture would agree with as well. Right? Our culture certainly also treats sex and sexuality as something that needs to be guarded and cared for. That it's a right. Right? Your ability to have sexual freedoms, sexual identities, all these things are rights. They need to be guarded and cared for and others can't take them away from you. Right? It, it is clearly not just some biological function the way in which the world operates. Sex and sexuality have really become life pursuits within our culture. But this has always been the case, that people have pursued that transcendence, that ecstasy, that joy that these things provide and have made it the pursuit of their entire lives. And as a culture, the culture seeks laws and regulations over various sexual expressions to guard and to protect what they see, too, as a great good. Now, as we know, our culture has been incredibly unsuccessful in their attempts to guard and care for women and children when it comes to sexuality. There's something, there's something really wrong. 
there's something wrong within our culture, there's something wrong within Israel. Israel's spiritual adultery throughout the Pentateuch and throughout the Old Testament is also going to coincide with this physical adultery as well. Throughout the scriptures, they're going to keep talking about Israel's whoring after other gods. I mean, just this, right, there's a deep connection between sex and marriage, ultimately, and unfaithfulness spiritually and physically that the people are experiencing on both levels. So why does God care so much about sex? (laughs) Why chapters on it here in Leviticus? It's really because God cares so much about his people. He cares so much for humanity. He cares so much about us. He cares about the redemption of all people. He cares about our experiences of what he has intended for our good, for human flourishing. He cares about these things because he cares about us and about societies. Sex and sexuality is a universal experience, right? It's universal. Everyone experiences these things in some way. And how people experience it, how people pursue it, how people protect it will reflect the God that they worship. Israel is called to protect sex and marriage. That's what Leviticus is telling them. You've got to put some guards around these things. You have to protect what I have intended for you as a people, to be for your good, for your flourishing, for the joy of the nations, and for your own joy. But it's going to require protection. If it's going to be of lasting good, if it's going to produce a people that will be holy and loving, that will actually demonstrate this wisdom and love of God, you have to take what I've given you and you have to put some guards around it. And so this call of scripture, when it comes to sex and marriage, to singleness, to men and women, Leviticus 18, right, it's, th- those are not complicated laws that you're to read. It's, in fact, incredibly straightforward and clear, right? Okay, I, it started in Genesis with, okay, man and woman, this is it. This is what I created you for. This man, this woman, I created you two to have sex. That should have been clear enough that you should not deviate beyond this, but they do. So then the Ten Commandments, okay, just don't covet your neighbor's wife, and we should be good, to now an incredibly detailed list of, okay, here's exactly who I mean by that. You have to stop having sex with all of these different peoples and animals. Like, none of this is intended by me, right? Which we know if we've been reading the Pentateuch back to the beginning. There's an incredible need that the people have for these clear instructions. There's so many specific laws given here to Israel really demonstrates the depth to which Israel has sunk, the depths to which the nations have sunk, that all of these things are common and normal practices. Something, C.S. Lewis gives this in Mere Christianity, right, that the message of the Bible when it comes to marriage and sex is really straightforward, Right? Sex is intended between a husband and a wife, and that's it. Very straightforward and clear. That it's, it's so straightforward and clear, you know, he would argue that either something's wrong with the Bible, because nobody's doing that, so either the Bible's wrong or we're wrong, or something's wrong with us, because we get the law. It's not because we need like more clarity can you just refine for me, Lord, what that means to have, you know, why sex and marriage is, you know, 
I get it, but really, give me more instructions. No, we know the instructions, but there does seem to be something wrong with us as a people, with as a society, as a culture. Something with Israel. Because Israel's history, <clears throat> up to this point and then after this point, the, that question of like, will they be a holy and distinct people unlike the rest of the nations when it comes to sex? No. Right? They won't. And we're gonna, if you read, if you continue reading through the Old Testament, you get to Judges and you find out the people are in the land and the Levites, the, the people who are supposed to be the priests, are in fact having concubines and there's rape and killing and all, all kinds of terrible sexual misconducts being done by the priests. You're like, they are not, they won't do it. They won't fulfill this calling that Israel has been given. And then we too have to look back as a, as a culture, as a church culture, right? Look at our own situation here in America and the world and say, I mean, has, has the church done any better when it comes to sexual ethics with sexual morals? And, right? and the answer, I mean, is clearly no, right? I mean, there's been, if you've been following the news recently, this last year, you know, that the Southern Baptist Church sex scandal is really just terrible, like with those findings that have been coming out more and more Hundreds and hundreds of employees in various Southern Baptist Church get, have been accused, almost all male youth pastors, get accused of sexual misconduct. There's an investigation, no charges. They're, you know, they just go to a new Southern Baptist Church and take up youth ministry somewhere else. And it's like, whoa, what's going on? You know, and then that's just that church, right? But I mean, we know about the Catholic Church. We know about uh, this, this issue of sexual abuse right, and misconduct. People, men taking advantage of women and children, the church, unfortunately, as Christians, have not had a different track record in our culture than the rest of the world. Whether we care to admit it or not, right, we have been incredibly influenced by our culture when it comes to sex. It's almost impossible not to be influenced by these cultural narratives, these cultural ideas of what's permissible and what's not. It gets encouraged everywhere to experience, to try, things are normal. To do this. I mean, it, it's inescapable to exist in our culture is to exist in a culture that really elevates and worships sex. Which has led then within the church, and this might have been your upbringing, if you grew up Christian, right? I mean, I think depending on your denominations or your experience with church, right, you, you probably vacillated between these two of like the church at times really overemphasizes and worships sex of like, you know, pastors talk about their smoking hot wives or, you know, these ideas of like sex is so great in marriage and it's so wonderful, but you got to wait, don't do it now, you know, but it really gets held up as this like huge prize or big thing and wonderful thing and worship, or it gets just never talked about, de-emphasized, becomes something that's shunned and never discussed. Why, why, why can't it have its proper place and be seen for what it is? Right? Our world is in desperate need, as, just, as in the ancient world was too, is in a desperate need of a different or holy way of approaching sex and sexuality. Right? Like, we need to be able to, as a, different, as a different type of people in the world, we need to be able to approach sex and marriage in a different way. Like, and not in the way that our culture does. And the call to God's people out of Leviticus is to be a holy people. To be a people 
where there will be constraints, there will be guards, where sex will have its rightful place, where there will be this emphasis on family, right? Because that's really all those relations that I keep talking about. It's like, these are your, this is your family. Why? No, this is your family. You are now part of the family of God. You are in the nation. This is, this is not, these are not sexual targets for people anymore. The, you are family. You are to view one another as a family. You have your family. They have their family. You are not to have a relation with them anymore. What, why would you think this way? But really to think now as a people of God, as a family of God, that's going into the land to bless the land. Our world is desperate for a picture, not just a picture, a way also to experience friendships, love, and relationships that are not overly sexualized, where women and children don't feel targets or are always at risk of sexual exploitation, right? Where men protect and care for as heads of families, right? Where singles don't have to worry or fear, where married couples have joy and experience the pleasure of sex that God has given them, but also it stays within the rightful context. Like, really, this, this call to, to sexual purity or to holiness is not outdated, Right, that's the other way in which people look at these laws of Leviticus. Of like, this is so old, ancient, not needed. No, our secular culture recognizes how needed this is and is desperately trying to enact laws and guards and things to protect sex. We as a people of God have been given incredible counsel, opportunities, and modeling of what this looks like as the family of God, brothers and sisters, not sexual conquests. But what the world also desperately needs, and what we, if we're true to ourselves, and what Israel also desperately needs, they need a picture, they need those instructions, we need those guardrails, we need those constraints. Yes. But what we also need, probably more so, is we need a way to deal with guilt and shame when it comes to sex. Sex and sexuality are so sought after in this world, absolutely, because they, it touches the transcendence, it gives all of these things, but it also is probably the biggest sources of guilt and shame in our own lives. And so when we look at laws, especially in Leviticus, we have to keep them alongside of the priesthood and the sacrificial systems too, within the whole message of Leviticus, within the whole message of the Pentateuch. These laws don't just exist on their own. Because if you think about the audience of this, <laughs> these are not perfect people who have now been given a perfect law to follow. These are people who just got done worshiping goat demons, who have also just taken part in all of these terrible sexual acts. Like, they are guilty of all of this, which is why they're being told this. You don't have to give this instruction to people who are not guilty of these things or who don't struggle with these things, then you can just tell those people, you can just tell, hey, keep loving your wives. No, they clearly have not been. They have been doing all of these things. So they have been given law, but they also are a people who have been redeemed, are a people who have been cleansed, are a people who have been interceded for and who have hope. 
And we, right, and this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, being on this side of Jesus, we're in the same position they are, same sin, same hopes, all of those things. But because of Christ, we also have been cleansed. We also have been atoned for. We also have been redeemed. All of our sins. And the truth of that changes the approach to the laws for them and for us. Right? If you're actually taking part in that sacrificial system and through the atonement, you're experiencing atonement and purification, you're experiencing that hope, you are now going to approach these laws differently. Same for us. If I have experienced atonement, experienced redemption, experienced this great high priest who shed blood on my behalf to forgive and redeem my sins, right, we now approach the law very different. Israel doesn't have to do the laws. They've been redeemed and set free to fulfill these laws, to follow these laws. What a gift to Israel that they get to, that they don't have to stay in their sexual sin. They don't have to continue in all of these practices that are so terrible and not honoring to the Lord. They've been given law, they've been given sacrifice, they've been given a means by which to be freed from sexual sin and to step into the calling that God has put on their hearts and onto their lives and as a people. Sexual sin has no power over them, which is true for us through Jesus Christ, right? This has no power any longer. Sin has been, it, it's such a freedom when we get sin called sin because sin has been dealt with and is done away with and we've been washed of sin. Okay, I know I have broken this law. We all have broken this law. Jesus comes and he makes the law even harder on a sexual level, right? Of even if you think of adultery with your neighbor's wife, you, you have broken these laws. We've broken the law. So we need that law, but we also need to be set free. We need to experience the power of the atonement and God's love. Because as you read Leviticus 18, the motivation for following God's law is because your God is holy, you are to be holy. Because of God's love, we are able to follow these laws. The love of God becomes our motivation and our power to be holy, to be separate, to be unlike. It's not because of me or my own power. When we keep God's law and our desires in light of the gospel, it really does change our hearts and our motivations. When we see the cost of redemption, we were talking about the sacrificial system last week, you know, the cost of that bull, which would be really felt by the people. This is a costly sacrifice. When you see the cost of our redemption, to the atonement, to make us clean, to purify us from all unrighteousness. When we see that, and when we really believe that that redemption, that sacrifice of Christ was enough to actually cover all sexual sin, all of us, when we actually believe that that has happened and we experience and see the cost of our redemption, right, it moves us, it moves our hearts, and it moves our lives and it puts us in a position of worshiping God not feeling guilt and shame and motivation to, for sexual holiness isn't motivated out of, I just want to be better, I want to prove myself, I want to do this, I need to do this, but rather, out of love for God, I want to do this because God has loved me. It increases our dedication to the law, which we need, 
It increases our dedication to our spouse or to singleness, to waiting. It increases our dedication to understanding and to experiencing freedom and redemption. Freedom for wherever you are in your life. If you're single, if you're married, if you have access to these things or don't. I have this experience of Christ and his freedom. There's no desire that I have that is outside of God. Sexual desires are given to us by the Lord, and I can give them to the Lord. There's no desire that I can't give to the Lord, and there is nothing that I've done that hasn't been covered by Christ and where we can experience that forgiveness and that redemption. So the sexual laws of Leviticus then, far from being a constraint or just a punishment to the people, they're given as a vehicle for which they will flourish as a nation, for them to experience the grace of God and for them to be a blessing to the world. It's not that they have to do it to be God's people. They are God's people. He has taken them out of Egypt. He has brought them to Sinai. And he has now graciously given them his laws to be a holy and distinct people unlike every other people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your law. Lord, thank you for your clarity in your word. Uh, Lord, we, we acknowledge as a people, historically for thousands and thousands of years, our deep need for your instruction. Lord, we're thankful for your long-suffering patience and care for your people, how you have continually worked to, well, really to constrain humanity's worst impulses, how you have brought about your redemption. Lord, how you have uh, really redeemed and sanctified and purified your people. And Lord, we do confess to you how often we take your good gifts, like marriage and sex, and we don't appreciate them properly. Lord, we worship them themselves rather than worship you as the giver of them. Lord, help us and strengthen us as your people to to live in a way that is different and distinct in this culture, in this world. To live as a way that is really ultimately very beautiful and life-giving and affirming. Uh, Lord, to live in a way that that really reflects that our hope and our love is in you. Lord, strengthen us. And Lord, strengthen us to experience the forgiveness that we have in you. Lord, to feel freedom from guilt and shame when it comes to sexual sin. Lord, to experience that pure, the purifying and atoning work of Christ on our behalf. Help us, Lord, uh, in the midst of our, our doubts in the midst of our, the feelings of accusations, uh, Lord, help us to, to really think of ourselves the way that you think of us, as your, as your sons and daughters in whom you are well pleased. Uh, Lord, strengthen us and help us in that experience, and strengthen us as a church as we go forth and, and really love this world in a way that is different, because we have a God who is unlike any other God and who loves in a way that is really beautiful. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word and for what it calls us to. And, Lord, thank you for the gospel that gives us hope and motivation and the ability to follow. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.